Welcome to the Fan Bros, the show where the bros are fans. And welcome, internets, to another episode of Fan Bros, the show where the bros are fans or something to that extent. This is your boy, DJ Benjamin, in the place to be, alongside my partner, Chico Leo. And the one and only Grand Duchess of Tech. Tatiana King-Jones. That's right. This is the Fan Bros Show, the premier podcast of geek culture by people of color, where we bring you the news, the latest information, all the updates, everything you want to know. And this right here is a very special episode. We're going to present you with our interview with Juno Diaz, the Pulitzer Prize winning author of such novels as The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow and This Is How You Lose Her. This is the Fan Bros Show interview with Juno Diaz. We're not going to waste any more time. We're going to get right to it. But one last thing to all our new listeners out there, go to dmidroll.com slash survey slash bros. And fill out our mid-roll survey for us, please. We just need a quick, brief survey from you, three minutes or less. Give us some information. Tell us who you are, what you like about the show, what you don't like, what you love about the show, all that good stuff. Please listen. Please fill it out. Dmidroll.com slash survey slash bros. All the new listeners out there, thank you for checking us out. Rate, subscribe, leave a comment on our iTunes page. We'll love you for it. You'll feel better about yourself in the morning. Hit us up on soundcloud.com slash fanbros. Check us out there. Subscribe. Leave a comment. Come to the wonderful world of fanbros.com. And keep coming back because we drop special deliveries. We have regular episodes every week. Bring your friends. We have articles, editorials, news, updates, all that good stuff. Fanbros.com. But I'm not going to make this intro any longer. We're going to bring you this Juno Diaz interview right now. And here it is. And welcome, Internets. It's your boy, DJ Benjamin, right back in the place to be alongside the homie. Chico Leo. How you doing, sir? I'm good. I'm good. I'm real excited to talk to our guest here. I our mean, special guest. Our special, special guest here. Internets, we've already given you the intro, so I'm not going to waste any more time. I just want to let you know, Juno Diaz is in the building today. He's on the spaceship. Oh, man. Thank yeah. you guys for having me, man. The Thanks legend, for coming. The man himself. How you doing, sir? Oh, I'm real good, man. It's good to see you guys here, man. It's good to see someone like you representing the uh, the Fambro's ethos out there in, in, in the real world. Well, come on, man. We are so deep and so poorly recognized, man. Oh, man. Well, that's the thing. One of the things we wanted to talk about is that we're living in this day and age where all, all the all the superhero and sci-fi and post-apocalyptic stuff that we grew up with that was sort of our thing when we were younger seems to be this mainstream thing all of a sudden with movies and TV shows and and all this other thing. Like people who would have sneered at that stuff, turned their nose up at it a long time ago are now, you know, they're in the front row cheering yeah, man. Well, that's the nature of capital. Capital's ability to colonize our most extreme dreams is just endless. I, I guess that's it. I mean, that that's definitely, I mean, it's, the, the, 
there's also this issue of of like we live in such uncertain times but i guess we were living in uncertain times in the 70s when like you know alien and star wars and planet of the apes and all that was coming up yeah man i mean you think of planet of the apes this is in the heights of civil rights man right in the middle of the vietnam escalation and deep into the cold war my thing always is that and this is something that it dawned on me the same way you were thinking this i was thinking as well that those of us who are young and on the fringe and having dreams that the community would rather not dream most communities don't want to dream the end of itself even though they're pursuing it we're beta testing what the larger culture is going to turn around and monetize what we were into when we were young 20 or 30 years down they're going to figure out a way to repackage that and sell it to people it's crazy so we were the vanguard uh only the vanguard to capital's need for profit gaining right 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 and so they figured out they saw what we were doing and they figured out how to package it and uh and sanitize it to a certain degree yeah it's all kind of a weird thing yeah, and that's crazy that you say that because I always say, like, I cannot believe that we're living in a day and age where next year we'll have a Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Yeah, man. Like, you know, I grew up with Rocket Raccoon and thinking, okay, you'll never see something like this on the big screen. And now next year, boom, Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy. Right. And yet the funniest thing is that what makes a Guardians of the Galaxy and what makes a Rocket Raccoon possible which is a bunch of creative folks just hanging around and dicking around is no longer a possibility at Marvel. Marvel and DC are such corporate enterprises that you're never going to see the goofy, inventive lunacy that drive drove comics. I mean, even the sort of blank check that Alan Moore and Frank Miller get in the 80s to write, you know, Dark Knight and write Watchmen, that ain't happening anymore, man. That's not, that space ain't there in corporate comic books. In independent comic books, certainly. It's all over the place. Yeah, man, certainly. Yeah, there's, there's no way DC lets anybody do what Frank Miller did with The Dark Knight nah. right now because they're they're too worried about what's happening with the movies and people's impression of Batman because it's, it's a property, not a character. Marvel is not Marvel Comics, it's Marvel Entertainment. And just everything that we loved. Listen, this stuff the reason people are using it isn't just that capitalism is the Borg. The reason people are using this stuff that we were coming up with is when nobody's paying attention to a bunch of young people. The creativity, the play that goes into when you think no one's got their eye on you is remarkable and everybody feels it. It's like hip-hop. When we were all growing up, before anybody realized that there was a hip-hop uniform, that there was a way to super monetize it, this is when, like, the vocabulary gets created. Right. Like, when I would go to the Lower East Side to get my Lee Twill, you know, jeans and my Adidas, shell-top Adidas, like, it was not a, you know, it was from some... Jewish store on the Lower East Side, it wasn't, you know, and now those things are, you know, upfront and, you know, marketed, you know, $300 and, and it's a totally different scene. Less room. I mean, I always think like if when you think there's a dollar sign attached to it, there's almost no chance that you're really going to play. And I think that that's the difference between, you know, growing up at a time when no one thought Rocket Raccoon could be monetized in a real way. So you would just like, yo, let's play. A raccoon? Got it. A talking tree? Got it. Better look behind you, mate. Want to formally introduce you, yeah? 
And now, but now people are saying we had a guest on our show, say, you know, predicting that the Rocket Raccoon doll was going to be the biggest seller at Christmas next year because of the movie, and that that's what that's what they're selling with the movie. They're putting out the movie is going to be a commercial for the toys. I mean, I just think in the end, it's for me, it's hard. I'm not a business person. It's hard to understand um, the way these uh, sort of entities function. But I mean, yeah, cynical, of course. Vampiric, of course. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, that's capitalism is is vampirism. Yeah. Um, do you do you think that there's any? I mean, to, to look at the bright side, is there a bright side with the internet where there's people doing Kickstarter or doing their own thing or start or building things up where the corporations and the larger society is not necessarily looking, and that people are people are able to reach their audience. You don't need to reach a million people. You can reach ten thousand, twenty thousand people, and find you know your your niche i mean is that is that real or is that just a bill of goods that, that we're getting sold well i mean look you got to understand my context and i think a lot of people belong to this context i'm a caribbean kid right i'm a kid of african descent you know i'm a descendant of slaves they're people who had no spaces to be creative and yet their creativity is what most of us are still dining off of four or five hundred years later my thing is, sure, there's a ton of pressure coming down. There's a ton of restrictions. But human creativity, young people's creativity, is just this irresistible force. And so, therefore, I'm both constitutively, historically, but also emphatically from my worldview, just always believe in people's ability to generate human interest creativity. Okay, and uh, speaking on that, you say your worldview. You moved from the DR to Jersey at about six years old. Exactly, yeah. And you said it was like being in a time machine, going from DR to Jersey and just the third world to the 70s of New York City and the surrounding area. Yeah, sir. So was it like a DeLorean or like the TARDIS more? Word. That's a great question, <laughs> man. You know, it's funny because when I think of my time machine, my first time machine was... <laughs> your Fisher-Price? Word. No, man. It was that sort of steampunk <laughs> beveled sort of perfect stainless steel and velvet seat from that George Powell extravaganza the, right, the time, time machine, machine. <laughs> absolutely and when I first saw a time machine I saw that then it became the TARDIS so okay. initially my time machine was a George Powell like pimped out right. Victorian ride <laughs> All right. Um, on that same note, what are your, some of your favorite time travel stories, films? Right. I Well, first of all, I'm one of these people who um, they should never have let seen Chris Marker's La Jetée too early. I don't mm. know if you've seen that Absolutely, short. I have, yeah. Yeah, you have to see this, my okay. brother. You would love it. It's basically the nucleus from which they grow 12 monkeys. Ah, it's one, one of the of, most, that's one of my favorites. Dude, you put that on right now, Le Jeté, and your mind will explode. Okay. And I saw that way too young, fried my brains. Of course, an 80s kid, an 80s kid, the Terminator, the Terminator ah, yeah. just, let me tell you something. When I saw the Terminator, <laughs> I saw it opening weekend and none of us knew anything about it we just saw because we live near a theater and we just saw the word the terminator we're like all right yeah. i'll go see a movie <laughs> named the terminator and then it just watched my brain explode i'm a friend of sarah connor i was told that she's here could i see her please no can't see her she's making a statement 
Where is she? Look, it may take a while. I want to wait. There's a bench over there. I'll be back. I saw the Terminator, um, I, I saw it in a funny way. One time I was at a convention and I walked into a room. I was maybe 11, 10 years old and they had it on VHS and are playing it. And I walked into the room when he's already the metal skeleton Boy. walking down after Sarah. And I was like, I saw that for like five seconds. I was like, yeah, that's too much for me. Walked out and didn't see the movie till like three years later when I saw the whole thing because I just wasn't ready at that time. No, you're all set, right? You're just yeah. all set. Man. Yeah, I was like, hold on. I thought there was Arnold Schwarzenegger and then there's this metal robot. I no, wasn't ready. No, that's like what we were talking about earlier. I feel like what's been lost with the Terminator franchise is this notion that the original one is one of the great time travel movies. Oh, definitely. In, you know, introducing all the paradoxes and... Just a really dope, I mean, it's also a dope action movie, it's a dope 80s movie, and it's a low-budget movie, you know? Yeah, and one of Nobody the was looking, and as soon as they realized they could make nobody money- Nobody was looking. Right, and that's that's the key thing, is you gotta be able to do stuff when nobody is looking. Once people think they can make money, then it becomes sanitized. The edges get beveled off. Look, you get Avatar, or right. you have Terminator. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. This is James Cameron, yo. Right. James Cameron went from being one of the most interesting- yeah, Absolutely. You know, B kind of movies. You look at Aliens, Aliens is probably one of the most efficient, beautiful, oh. amazing, you know, mainstream B movies to Avatar. Avatar. And you would think someone smoked crack in between. And I have always had this argument with people when they're like, oh my God, Avatar, Avatar. And I'm just like, come on, man. It's like, go look at Terminator 2 and the chase sequence at the end of that, or, you know, like you said, Aliens, the first 30 minutes, you know, just how it just moves, and then you have Avatar. Avatar might have been better if James Cameron had smoked a little more crack in between. (laughs) Yeah, man. But, you know, this is what happens, though, is that, like, again, this is what's so unusual, is that while the dreams of these 80s nerds, of all of us, are the ones that people are using as the sort of code to rewrite this new stuff, the new stuff lacks almost any coherence or, as you were saying, any kind of edginess. And therefore, we're like crying on the street corner saying, look, the original, the original. But in the end, people are so used to eating white bread, you know. It's that, what it is. Yeah, it's hard to get people to go back to eating sort of that kind of grainy, hard, tough bread, but that's actually nutritious. Do you think that that comes from, like, uh, we were, when we were growing up and we had a very light sense of the apocalypse upon us? Like, I read that that was, like, you said that very big influence on you. And that's something like me. I grew up in Houston, and every Friday at noon they would play the nuclear drills. Like, yes, they would sir. play the, the test sound. So I just grew up reading about, you know, bomb shelters and all kind of things, and it was just something that weighed on my mind. And now, even though we live in an age where it might be even more apocalyptic scenarios, it doesn't seem to just affect the youth like it affected us. I think, listen, I think that what was fascinating, again, about growing up when we did is that there were so fewer youth-oriented distractions. Mm. I mean, honestly, no one had figured... No one had figured out we were a huge market. No one was paying attention to us. Even adults were not convinced that being friends with their kids was a good idea. We were, I'm telling you, there was not a kid growing up in those days, no matter what their relationship to their parent, that wasn't really a latchkey kid. Because parents weren't paying attention the way they pay now. No. We were on our own. And I think that allowed us different things. But also the culture basically left us in many ways alone. 
In the 80s, you could maybe name two or three things that you wanted to buy. The average kid now can name a thousand things they wanted to buy. There's many more distractions. So I think our eyes were clearer about what was happening in the culture because there wasn't this constant carnival of you know, consumption around us to distract us, or we're not always sitting there, we weren't always there thumbing a little square of technology. And I think that when we were growing up, the face of the culture was clearer to us, and it's harder now to see the face of the culture. And growing up in the 80s, under the nuclear apocalyptic terror of the last stages of the Cold War, that face was a skeleton. And if you were a slightly sensitive young person who had an eye on what was going around in the world, there was little to keep you from noticing that the larger culture was staring at you with a death mask. Yeah, I, I, I remember the day after. We didn't have oh nuclear, my God. nuclear drills, but that really, I mean, I had nightmares. I was in seventh grade when the day after came out, and that was, it was a TV movie, for those of you out there who don't know, about what happens in America the day after there's a nuclear war. And ruined me as a yeah, kid. That yeah, re- that really freaked me out. You know, the other thing is that there's so many cultural things that contribute to this. I mean... A lot of people in, in that grew up when we did, it was the first time that you really had a lot of people growing up with single parents. And so that contributed to the latchkey thing and, and, and people being raised by, you know, I, I didn't see any of the Planet of the Apes movies in the theaters. I saw them on Channel 11 or Channel 5 on, you know, on the weekends. Um, and now the reverse of that is true. Like, I feel like now they're trying to reach out to this global audience and that's why the edges have all been sort of worn down because they're making these products that are, that have to appeal to people in China, people in India, people in Europe, people in America, all at the same time. And what, even though there is a common humanity there, there's so much cultural stuff that they have to leave out um, to appeal to all those people at once. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a basic, it's the basic contradiction democracy cannot exist without community right and art cannot thrive collect like you can't create a piece of art with 30 people you know throwing it in it's not a, a committee like you get right. you've got to you know you can collaborate with people but that's different i think most artistic products that are going into circulation right now film they're being made by committee yeah a- absolutely and yeah. you know I just look, I have to tell you, man, it's so hard to communicate to folks outside of that generation how palpable the nuclear terror was. Yes. And how hard it was, even for those of us who were living it, how hard it was to for us to repress it. Yeah. And now they're doing it with the terrorism or the, the terrorism. I mean, they're, they're, they're doing something, you know, to, to, to the to the. The people of today, um, and then I guess that there are all these distractions. Now, have you had any experience dealing with like movie people, with like your books or any of your work or TV or that kind of mainstream corporate monolith? You know, um, you know, has has anyone talked about making, you know, making making a movie of any any of that? And and sure. and and but but have you run into issues where they, you know, what they are envisioning is completely the opposite of what you were thinking when you were writing? Well, I've, we've never even gone that far. You have to understand, <laughs> right. I'm a I'm a person of color artist who writes exclusively about people of color. Last night I went to see I went to the movies last night. Right. And me and my friends were sitting there watching the movies and there were seven trailers and all seven trailers were about white males in a white male universe dealing with white male 
angst about their masculinity. All of them. Right. Well, let me tell you, ain't Hollywood and no mainstream producer dying to make any movies about Dominican nerds living in New Jersey. <laughs> right. And so we don't even get to the stage where they can say we want to cast white people. Right. They right, take right. one look at that book and they're like, wow, <laughs> guess what? This book is about the real country that we live in. But what they want to sell us is the good of bills that we're all living in 1950s uh, Switzerland. Mm. Um, on that note, you uh, you said in an interview that you often don't get reviewed by people or never get reviewed by people who look like you. And you also said in another quote that's one of my favorite quotes now is you said that a mother effer will read a book that's one third Elvish, but you put two sentences in Spanish and they think we're taking over. Yeah. No, I mean, I think the first one was the first quote was more about um, not just that <clears throat> the it was about the seriousness of a review. For example, I'm a Caribbean artist. I am clearly deeply engaged in a conversation with other Caribbean writers, with historical patterns in the Caribbean. I'm very much interested in conversations about immigration. I'm almost never interviewed by anyone who has any kind of expertise, not interviewed, excuse me, reviewed with any kind of expertise in this area. That's like you being an expert in Vietnamese agrarian farming and being reviewed by someone who knows nothing about any of these things. And this often happens. This often happens because the intellectual component of our work tends to be dismissed and not taken seriously, where if you have another, let's say you have a mainstream writer who's writing about Victoriana, right? They'll have someone who at least is qualified to right. speak on this. And then the law of the question is very true. Look, this is a country, as you see with our immigration policy, that is Latinophobic. Its baseline is hostile to Latinos, hostile to Spanish. This is true for many groups of color. Um, and you see this play out in a book like mine, where Cormac McCarthy will write half pages in Spanish. But because he's a white writer, no one ever complains about right, it. Right, right, right. You can get on Cormac McCarthy's fa Amazon page, and there's no one complaining about his Spanish right. at all. Uh, they are on your page. Oh my God, my <laughs> students! My students are always saying, "Professor, half of their half of your Amazon thing is people complaining about you using Spanish." Is it because yeah. people think you're making a political statement, but by by using Spanish? Or I think I mean, that's generous. It, I think that's generous. It's explain just to me. Explain to me why, if a white old white male right. uses three times more Spanish than me, he gets no comments. Right, and then I use one third less Spanish than right, him. Right, right, right. I have a Z in my name have color in my face, right. and suddenly this is problematic. It's what happens, look, how many times, look, this is for me very interesting about the way these things work. How many times have I walked up to people and said a sentence to them in perfect English, whatever perfect may be, right. quote, quote, unquote, and that person in the United States will look at me and simply not understand a word I said because they expect this brown face not to speak English. And they will be like, excuse me, what? And it's not just they didn't hear me. Right, right, right. And then I look at their face as it slowly <laughs> dawns on them, I actually spoke English to them. Right. And their expectations are like, oh, my God. And this has happened so often, this is not even a matter of paranoia. There's people out there who've had this experience and know what I mean, and other people who are just always think anything that has to do with people of color's um, views of the universe are these, like, delusional, paranoid fantasies. But this is, I think, explains the McCarthy, you know, 
the McCarthy, what we call dilemma. Right now, Cormac McCarthy, not Joseph McCarthy. Oh yeah, my yeah, God, yeah. poor <laughs> Joseph, poor us. I, I have a question in, with Spanish and English. You write in English. You're, you're in terms of the main. Do, do you? How much do you have anything to do with the Spanish translations of your books? Like, sure. do you write them twice? Or no, do you... I don't have that talent, man. Right. Okay. Yeah. That 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 was what I was wondering. No, um, you you got to be a talent. Look, I'm not. I am not bilingual at the level that I could rewrite my book. I need a far more talented Spanish writer person to put the swing in. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Um, uh, Not to get too political, but I wanted to ask you, recently in the Dominican Republic, there was a big ruling that went down about that um, Haiti, the Haitians who live there won't be considered citizens anymore. I just wanted to know your thoughts on it and let the fan bros out there, you know, know what the situation is or how you feel right now about it. Yeah, look, there has been a very large conservative groundswell, hemispheric and global, about folks trying to figure out how to assault, how to um, terrorize, how to sort of strip immigrants and immigrant communities from their rights. Yeah, Mm -hmm. This is something that's happening across the world. You go to Europe and you see all the most nativist, anti-immigrant parties on the rise. You look at the United States, the United States, all these different states are passing clearly, clearly, you know, non-constitutional. These things are not constitutional laws to victimize um, immigrant communities. And in this country, it's a specifically anti-Latino movement where they're targeting Latino communities, trying to strip them of their rights. And this is stuff that would not pass mustard in the Supreme Court, but of muster in the Supreme Court. But you see folks still going out there because demonizing immigrants is an easier practice than confronting the political elites that are fleecing the country, that are plundering the country. And now in the Dominican Republic, we have a similar situation, but just more explicitly malign, more blatantly racist where we see a judge one judge rule in a court case that anyone of Haitian descent who has been living in the United States in the Dominican Republic since 1928 no has no Dominican citizenship retroactively stripping Dominican citizens of their citizenship based on some ridiculous proof of you know residency And this is the kind of nonsense that you're seeing in a place like Santo Domingo, but that you'll soon see directly in places like Europe and in places like the United States. You're seeing it in Arizona. You're seeing it in Texas. You know, not just the voting disenfranchisement, but the, uh, you know, taking the curriculum out of the schools, like literally writing, quite literally writing people out of history. Yeah, in Georgia, where it's like you're, if you're uh, a kid from an undocumented family, you can't attend these colleges. Right. And it's an attempt, look, because this is all about creating a permanent second class citizenry in any nation. And this is the most, probably the most loathsome, the most despicable act of um, sort of legal cowardice that you've seen. But this is in competition with a lot of other cowards trying to pass horrifyingly dehumanizing cruel laws to come after the most vulnerable communities. And listen, the Haitian Dominican and Haitian communities in the Dominican Republic play an enormous, important, valuable role. And these right wing 
racist lunatics in Santo Domingo have been on these poor communities and on our more democratic human idea of a national project, they've been on us like a demon. And this is part of the reason we have to fight so strongly against this. Now, how do we fight? Like, as an artist, you tell stories and you put the stories out there. And as a citizen, we can vote. But I mean, it just sounds so like how 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 can someone you know, how do how can someone who's listening to this do something about any of this? You know, uh, you know, it's it's it seems sort of inexorable. Well, not it doesn't have to be. I don't think things are inexorable. I think we constantly fight and overturn things. Right. I think we constantly raise our voices and change the debate. Listen, Mitt Romney would be president (laughs) right Right, now. Right now, if it wasn't for the anti-Wall Street movement, had those young people not altered the debate on plutocracy, not altered the debate on the loathsome levels of wealth accumulation and the disregard for the working class and the middle class, Romney would have gotten one or two percent. When I think of folks, when I think of what folks can do, I always think it's the same thing. Listen, we all have to do our community work. All of us need to be giving back to our civic society. We all need to be involved in ways to better this society. Those muscles in which we help each other, those muscles in which we do work for people less, better off than us, are the most democratic muscles. And when it comes time to resist real tyranny, those are the muscles that are going to serve us in good stead. Even if your issue is not the Dominican Republic, it's not the rights of Haitian Dominicans and the Haitian community in Santo Domingo, simply by exercising the muscles of resistance, by exercising the muscles of commonwealth, of brotherhood and sisterhood, these things are valuable insurrectionist strategies. Nice. And I, I'm gl- I love to hear you speaking like this because um, I know right now you're working on another novel about the future and whatnot. And I was reading and I've just been noticing and I feel like lately... There hasn't been since Star Trek in the 70s, there hasn't been any positive views of our future. Like most views we have are apocalyptic, like Watchmen, Akira, you know. And why do you feel that or do you feel that there's like, I mean, you obviously have hope for the future. But why do you feel that our media isn't reflecting this? I think in the general, in general, there is an entire. Now, look, there's not some evil overlord sitting here looking down and deciding what's going on in the culture. There's a number of forces interlocking, interplaying, and there's always currents of resistance. Of course, we understand this, but we're in a cultural moment right now where for the last 50 years, it has been very important that everyone is afraid. Right. It has been very important for all of our political elites that people cannot imagine a better future. It is very important that everyone is convinced, as long as I keep my head down, I might not have what my parents had, but at least I'll have a little bit. And I think that what we have is we have the creative arts in large part responding to the larger cultural shift, responding to political elites and their media organs, responding to all sorts of things. But what we get is a future view, a future vocabulary that is profoundly menacing, cautionary, and dangerous. Because think about the amount of young people there are now in this country. Imagine if these young people, there's four or five times more young people in this country than there were during the 60s. 
Imagine if these young people, instead of being afraid of tomorrow, instead of thinking that tomorrow is going to be darker, instead of thinking that tomorrow is going to provide less, imagine these young people profoundly believed that a new tomorrow, a better tomorrow, a better world was possible. And I think that this is one of the greatest control devices for these young people is keeping the future dark. If you think the future is dark, you're not going to fight for a better future. You find you think that it's uh, it's already been written. It's already nihilistic. And I think that this is all about that. I think that this is all about that. Oh, man, that that's so awesome to hear because I'm a big a fan and, you know, a person who believes that our thoughts create our world. And so, like, you know, like you said, I feel like that people are just pushing that, you know, dark, dark, dark upon us. And I, that's why I have a problem with it, because I feel like we should have more hopeful visions of the future, you know, to encourage people to think about the future in a better way. I, mean, I don't one, mind. I mean, I guess I don't mind the idea that we have to pass through fire. We're passing through fire right now. But mostly these visions that we're getting in the future is we pass through fire and get nothing Mm. from it. The fire is everything. When I look at something like Planet of the Apes, Planet of the Apes is a deeply bleak vision, but that leaves us with an urge to transform the world. Mm -hmm. You finish Planet of the Apes and you say, you know what? I'm going to fight against nuclear weapons. I'm going to fight against racial regimes. These days, movies are less leaving us with the sensation of it's going to be bleak. Don't fight. Go home. Get on Instagram. I mean, even the new Planet of the Apes in the new one, which I actually really like the latest uh, remake of it. But the end is very bleak. All the humans die. And it's just like the apes are coming up, you know. And but I'm not sure it gave us any view of anything. No, no. no. Yeah, it doesn't have the racial component. It doesn't have the vision of the future. It just has, you know, apes are coming up. Yeah. So. Yeah. When was the last time that we didn't have this 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 sort of menacing zeitgeist? I mean, would you say like the late 60s with the age of Aquarius or was that just like some blip that just, you know, sort of came and went or because, you know, I mean, you go back to the Middle Ages and people had visions of the end times and, you know. You had, you know, Aztecs, you know, uh, th- you know, thinking the world was going to come to an end. And... But there were different streams. Right. So you also had people in the medieval period, and we've got to be real specific, like where in the right. medieval period. You had the Albigensians who are, you know, a crusade is brought up against them because they had these utopian visions of a better world. And I think that you always get people with these sort of millenarian utopian impulses. I think what's happened now is, look, people in the 60s fought a global struggle for a better human life because they believed in their bodies that a better tomorrow's not it was possible these days we can't even imagine in our dreams wow. a better tomorrow is possible forget our bodies and you know it brings up that statement frederick jameson is always sort of Um, tagged for saying that it's easier for people to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And I think that that has a lot to do with what's at stake here. We know who our enemy is down in our hearts. We know that our future is being devoured, that our inheritance, this incredible planet, is being compromised. But we're too afraid to say the name of Voldemort. We're too afraid to say Voldemort's (laughs) name because then we have to fight. You can't just say his name. You have to decide once you say it whether you're for or against. But when you pretend that nothing's going wrong, well, then you don't got to get off the bench. You don't got to get off the sideline. Wow. Yeah, I mean that I mean that I mean there's a, yeah, absolutely I mean I think all of that is 100% true. I don't even know how to how to follow that up. Um 
Ben well, I mean, looks like he has a question. Yeah, I definitely do. Um, it's a question we asked all of our guests here. When was the first time that you realized you were a fan, bro? Yeah, man. Listen, I was, <laughs> let me tell you something. I was a big nerd. Now, we all try to claim like, um, you know, the earliest, the better, the most powerful, the better. You know, there's that, what my, me and my boys call nerd dignation. We're always <laughs> right. like trying to like, you know, out nerd each other, nerd bro each other. Well, my thing was that I, when I was in the Dominican Republic, a neighbor had a TV and that 60s Spider-Man cartoon was on. And I had never seen TV before. Right. And I got to watch this early Spider-Man show and I became possessed by that one episode. It was the episode where Spider-Man fights the rhino ah. and literally became possessed. All my nerdiness extends from there. I am the rhino. Nothing can withstand me. I must have more gold. And then I will control the world. And I was like climbing on things, alternately pretending I was Spider-Man and pretending I was Rhino. I remember I ran into one of the shoddy walls in our <laughs> house in Santo Domingo with my head thinking I was a Rhino, almost knocked myself out. And the entire tale finishes where me playing Spider-Man climbed up the mango tree in our family house fell off the tree, landed on a barbed wire fence, and cut my, like, tore open my abdomen. I still have the scar. My wow. mom had that, my mom was a nurse's student, and she hand-sewed me. Oh. And when I knew I was a serious <laughs> nerd, bro, was I recovered from that terrible injury, and the first thing I wanted to do was go back to play Spider-Man. <laughs> so I must have been, like, six years old, man. Six years old. Okay. It, and Spider-Man, as a character, has had, like, real resonance with people. I mean, more than a lot of these other characters. Even when the president was asked who his favorite superheroes were, he definitely he didn't say Wolverine or Superman. I mean, he said Spider-Man. Spider-Man, yep. Um, Luke Cage or Black Panther? Oh, that is a tough <laughs> one. That is a tough one. Now, here's the here's why. I think it's important to state why we make these aesthetic decisions. Right, yeah. <laughs> you know? I need I need to stick, even though I'm an immigrant, I need to give Luke Cage some love, you know, because in the end, it's easy to imagine ourselves the prince of some <laughs> fake African nation <laughs> where we control all the resources. I'm not that kind of dude. Yeah. I don't want to control anything or anyone. I don't want to claim royalty. So I'm Luke right all the way. OK, Falcon or Rhodey. Oh, come on, man. I got to go for the... I'm going old Falcon, yeah, bro. definitely Falcon. Falcon looks... In, it's tough to think about it now, but when we were kids, yo, those duds were bad, yo. <laughs> the, the red and yellow? Or, I mean, some... the, or the green and yellow? No, the red, man. The red, the red. Did you see the Captain America trailer? Yes. Yes, the, he, he looks really good in it. Yeah, he looks badass. Yeah, yeah, I was really happy to see that. Okay, uh, we know you're from Jersey, so uh, Tretch or Red Man? No, it's got to be the Red Man, <laughs> yo. I'm sorry. I hate to be this way. It's got to be Red Man. All right. Um, the, the biggest one, the one that gets the most, Star Trek or Star Wars? Oh, deadly. Deadly. No questions. Yeah, I'm a big Star Trek geek. Straight up. Watch Star Trek like crazy. Still. 1977, oh, I was nine years old. Yep. I stepped into that theater, and whatever was going on in my brain was rewritten. And it was Star Wars, yo. My sister told me this crazy story the other day. I mean, I knew it was like this about me, but she was like, Benjamin, you were a quiet toddler 
until we took you in to see Star Wars. Yeah. And then you just got excited about life afterwards. And you would, came out of that movie and just yep, 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 yep. And everything was Star Wars out your mouth. No, you get reformatted. It's a life-changing moment when I yeah. saw Star Wars. Life-changing. And again, as a kid, we all I saw, I could barely listen. I was only learning English. Right. I was finally getting a hang of English. And I saw the commercial. And my eyes, it was as if... I don't know what. It was like telling a kid about Halloween for the first time. My <laughs> eyes just got wide. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about, when I was at your book signing, you spoke about how comics can't be recreated in any other medium. But like in um, Oscar Wilde, you definitely use a lot of comic tropes and whatnot. Like the, And then that was nothing. Like when I read reviews of it, people are like, oh, my God, what's up with these footnotes? And oh, my God, what's up with this? And it's like from someone who grew up reading comics, that's just standard issue stuff. So... Like, how do you explain that to people or how do you try and get that across to people or what's that come from? You know, in the end, I think, especially a book like The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, that it's a book that can be read. Like, as I as I talk to my boys, like a square can read this book. Someone who doesn't know comic books, someone who doesn't know science fiction. But let me tell you something. It's sort of like going to see the wizard and not looking behind the mask. Mm. You know, and I think that if you know comics and you know science fiction, and you know science and you know some of these apocalyptic movies um, and texts, the book becomes something else. The book becomes far deeper, far more disturbing. And for me, I think it's important for a book to work on many different levels and many different communities. But I wanted to create a I wanted to create a secret letter to what we would call the fangirls fan girls fan and bros. fro bros you know yep. the fan family yes you know we family and i wanted to write this secret letter because there is no person of color there's no person from a marginalized community that doesn't read the genres comic books science fiction and not see how more honest these texts are about the way we're living about the way we're oppressed the way that power is used the way that race exists and I think that for me, it was a way of kind of doubling down on a lot of my stories and doubling down on a lot of my messages, you know. OK, I see we got to wrap it up pretty quick. So I got a quick uh, story I just wanted to tell you about Oscar Wilde. Um, I first found out about your book about 2007. Right. And, you know, I was like, oh, you know, it was a, I think it was in Vibe or Double XL. They reviewed you. And I was like, wow, you know, a Spanish author talks about hip hop, talks about comic books, you know, references. So I was like, I got to get my hands on this book. Uh, maybe about a week later, I got locked up. I was uh, in Dubai, actually, spent some time over there. Yeah, long story. Yeah, I, yeah fan bros, if you could see the look on Juno's yeah. face right now. Dubai and lock up <laughs> yeah. are words I never hear, want to hear in conjunction, man. Well, yeah, so I was over there, and, you know, we could get books. So I try and get somebody to buy me your book and bring it to me. And, you know, I tell friends, and they'd be like, brief wonder is life. Yo, no, I'm going to go get this Harry Potter over here, you know. So I spent the whole time there trying to get my hands on the book. Long story short, didn't do it. Get home. First thing I do, go home to Houston, see my moms and everything. Get the book. Leave it in Houston with her. She reads it first. She's like, oh, my God, Benjamin, this book is so amazing. You know, so I finally get it six months later. And after like basically two years and change, I finally get my hands on the book. Well worth all the wait, man. I just wanted to say thank you for it, you know. Oh, man. But, I mean, listen, that's that's a voyage, a voyage, brother. And uh, but I'm just glad we were able to meet on the page somewhere in the universe, bro. I appreciate it, man. Definitely. And I have one last question for you. When we met at the signing and I told you about what Fan Bros is, that we're basically, you know, we want to showcase geek culture by people of color, you know, people of color who create it, people of color, you know, reviewing it. 
and you were just said you said something to me about like y'all are just living and creating the dream and it, it blew my mind i was like yo like thanks you know but what, could you expand on that a little bit could you you know say how you feel about the fan bros and just like geek culture and people of color finally getting to represent it look without our stories without the true nature and reality of who we are as people of color nothing about fanboy and fangirl culture makes sense what i mean by that is if it wasn't for race x-men doesn't make sense mm. if it wasn't for the history of breeding human beings in the new world through chattel slavery dune doesn't right. make sense if it wasn't for the history of colonialism and imperialism star wars doesn't make sense if it wasn't for the extermination of so many indigenous first nations most of what we call science fiction's contact stories doesn't wow. make sense without us as the secret sauce none of this works and it is about time that we understood that we are the force that holds the star wars universe together we're the prime directive that makes star trek possible yeah we are the at, in the green lantern core yeah we are the oath we are all of these things erased and yet without us we're essential and so i think that this is the most this is an incredibly important project because it puts front and center not only a community that has long consumed and given power to these sort of practices and these sort of consumer categories but it's a community without whose suffering struggles and victories none of this would make sense so when i think of what a valiant project would be what i think would be valuable and what i think of something that i would love to wake up every day and doing i can't imagine anything besides this other than writing <laughs> well wow. man i think you just made my year juno so yeah. thank you very much sir yeah man thank you guys it's great to see you i hope we get up in new york without none of this oh man yeah we're definitely gonna have to do this again sometime uh i'd just like to thank you once again let everyone know out there they can pick up you know your books are in stores right now this is how you lose her with the illustrated edition with jaime hernandez right now yes loving yeah, rockets loving yeah, rockets. Loving rockets yeah Amazing, man. Um, once again, thank you for coming through. Chico, you got anything left? No, I'm, I'm, I'm just really glad that I came and, uh, and, and got, to, got to sit here and talk to you. I mean, there, there, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of wisdom dropped here. And uh, I just hope everyone can, uh, you know, sort of think about and, uh, and apply some of the stuff that, that, you know, Juno was talking about. One last quick one. What's yeah, the worst brother. token character in science fiction? <laughs> Wow, there <laughs> is no end to the token character in science fiction. But first, can we start with Daredevil, the comic? Uh-oh. Let's not even go to science fiction. Let's start in comics. Remember Daredevil? You guys ever read Daredevil? Of course. Of course. Yeah, Don't yeah. you remember Daredevil has the brother who he's always beating on to get information, the guy on the street. Don't you remember right. his name? Like, Turk? Turk. 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 Yes. yes. Turk. Yeah, Turk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turk is the great fantasy of white males. <laughs> wow. Turk is the, like, compensatory fantasies of white males. They're right. like, yeah, I, I need some information. I'm going to go break a brother up. Right. I'm like, I want to see some of these dudes. Let me get a white dude without a uniform, you know, go down there to some of these projects right. and try to rouse dudes up to get some information. So here's in comic books, it's that. Right. 
in science fiction. Well, <laughs> where do we begin? Yeah, let's think. What would be the great character that doesn't get any kind of love? Um, would it be... No, the thing had good characters. The thing had good characters. Um, not good enough. Again, I, I, there's a part of me that thinks that, like, uh, when we know that Jar Jar Binks, Binks. is coded right. as Caribbean and coded as black, <laughs> we know that that takes the cake. Yeah. We take the Mazza. It takes yeah. step and fetch it, man. That right. takes the cake. Yeah. Well, Jar Jar Binks, there we go. And like I said, once again, thank you, Mr. Diaz. Thank you. This has been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for coming through the Fan Bros Show. Chico Leo, your boy DJ Ben Amin. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Peace. Peace. Thank you.